pleasure to be with you today to talk about the economic outlook for uh, this region and for our nation. Um, I work, as Barbara noted, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and it's something of an odd thing here that uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, uh, our district, that the nation's capital lies within our district and not sort of the other way around. Uh, that oddity is, is a byproduct of decisions made over 90 years ago when establishing the Federal Reserve System. Congress uh, set up a system of that was a, essentially a confederation of regional banks rather than making one single monolithic uh, bank like Citigroup or Bank of America or something like that. Um, they, and when the founders organized the system, they made Richmond the capital of um, the Fifth Federal Reserve District. And this district goes from Maryland and West Virginia in the north down through the Carolinas in the south and includes the district naturally and, and um, the state of Virginia as well. Their motivating vision of these founders was uh, to, that the nation would be better served by an institution that was closely linked with the diverse economies that make up our country. So one of the key responsibilities we have at a regional Federal Reserve Bank is to understand economic conditions um, around our district. Of course, the Fed is well represented within the Beltway, I should note, uh, since Washington is the home of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, which is the name of the federal agency that oversees all of the operations and activities of the reserve banks. They're kind enough to let me roam Washington at will, and we're kind enough to cut their paychecks for me. <laughs> so it's, it's fitting that I'm here today. I plan to discuss economic conditions in our Federal Reserve District uh, with a particular focus on conditions in our region here, around the D.C. region. But because our region's economy is so tightly linked to national economic conditions, we're going to spend some time as well talking about the overall economic picture. Before I begin, though, I need to state the usual disclaimer that, as always, my remarks reflect my own views and do not necessarily reflect the views of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System, but my recent votes have probably clued you into that. <laughs> set the stage, let's start at the national level. The, the U.S. economy is in a period of transition. Looking back over the last three years, real gross domestic product, or our broadest measure of economic activity, grew at a three and three quarters percent annual rate. That's a very healthy growth rate to sustain over a number of years, and it coincided with significant improvement in the labor market, with three, uh, I'm sorry, 5.3 million new jobs created uh, over that time period, and the unemployment rate falling by one and a half percentage points. Now, right now, labor market conditions are rather firm. Uh, the economy is transitioning to growth at a trend rate of around 3% per year, a pace at which job growth is going to match uh, the, the growth in the number of workers over time. That's sort of the definition of, of trend rate of growth that we're, a sustainable rate of growth that we're headed towards. Now, I, I should note that it would not be unusual for a transition of this type to trend growth to be a little bumpy. And that occurred, in fact, back in 1995. Uh, growth in the first half of that year dipped below 1% at an annual rate before returning to a healthy pace that was sustained for the next five years. This time around, there's a fairly obvious reason to believe that uh, growth might drop below average for time, and that is the end of the residential housing boom. I'll talk
talk a little bit more about housing later because the, the adjustments in the housing market plays out um, is going to be an important source of uncertainty for the outlook. And that's true both nationally and uh, here in the region. The other major source of uncertainty in the outlook concerns inflation. Price stability is the central responsibility of the Federal Reserve System. We know now that we contribute best to economic growth when we keep inflation low and stable. That's widely understood as requiring inflation to average between 1 and 2 percent per year as measured by the core price index for personal consumption expenses, which is our favorite measure of inflation. By that measure, inflation has drifted up to about 2.5 percent this year. We think inflation is likely to moderate over the near term, but there's substantial uncertainty as to how long that's going to take. Should inflation persist around the current elevated level, firmer monetary policy would be required to restore price stability. As a result, I believe policymakers will need to remain quite vigilant in the period ahead to ensure that inflation moderates at a sufficient pace. Turning now to the region, the overall outlook for the 5th District's economy is positive, though perhaps somewhat less so than if I had been giving this talk earlier this year. Employment growth over the last 12 months um, ending in August has proceeded at a solid 1.7% uh, rate, better than the 1.3% growth of the nation as a whole. The combined unemployment rate for the six jurisdictions that make up our district has been steady at around the current 4.5% rate, which was comparable to the 4.6% unemployment rate for the nation as a whole. The picture, though, that I, I give you here masks significant differences between several unique economies within uh, this Federal Reserve District, however. The Carolinas, uh, North and South Carolina, along with the southern edge of Virginia, for example, is a region that historically has been dependent on manufacturing, particularly textiles and furniture. These industries have shifted much of their production overseas in recent years. Six years ago, employment in textiles and apparel comprised 23 percent of all manufacturing employment in, our re in that region. And as of August this year, that share was down to just 16%. Despite this tremendous structural change, though, economies in this area are currently experiencing job growth at over 2%, greater than the national average, and employment in the Carolinas has recently reached new peaks. During this rapid, driving this rapid growth is the continued expansion of construction jobs, and I'll say more about construction jobs in a minute added strength in service sector jobs, and a lessening of manufacturing job losses. In fact, new manufacturing operations requiring more highly skilled workers are offsetting some of the decline in the old line, low-skilled industries. On the service sector, we're seeing growth in education and health services categories. And another big factor is financial services. Some of this is attributable to the recent rapid growth in jobs in the Charlotte region, which by some measures is the second largest banking center in the country. The Charlotte area accounts for about a fifth of all jobs created in North Carolina in the past two and a half years. In contrast, South Carolina still has many counties, mostly rural, with double-digit unemployment rates, signaling that the state still has some catching up to do. In many ways, the southern tier of Virginia is broadly similar to the economy of the Carolinas, and it shares some of the same economic issues as those states. An exception is the greater Norfolk and Virginia Beach areas, uh, with, in which a uh, large military component uh, added to tourism and services 
uh, has been uh, enabling that region to, to post strong employment growth. Looking westward within the 5th District, West Virginia has also been shifting to a services economy, with nearly half of the state's residents now officially residing in metropolitan statistical areas. You wouldn't have thought that. In fact, the eastern panhandle of West Virginia is officially part of the Washington metro area. Outside the panhandle, though, uh, many areas of West Virginia still rely heavily on manufacturing or mining. These industries continue to display a pronounced cyclical uh, nature, and that make, they make the West Virginia economy more, more volatile than uh, other areas of our district. Nonetheless, recent expansions uh, by Japanese car manufacturers combined with the boost to natural resource industries from relatively high energy prices have paid dividends to the state in recent years. So closer to home, Northern Virginia, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland, and portions of eastern West Virginia comprise the third broad economic region within our district. This region is composed primarily of service-oriented urban areas that have historically outperformed other regions in our district as well as the national economy. The federal government obviously has served as a major source of job growth for the region and has traditionally acted as an economic stabilizer. This region, for example, was affected much less than the rest of the country by the recession that occurred earlier in this decade. And employment growth has continued to outpace the nation. Washington metro area employment grew 2.5% in the year ending August, adding more almost twice the national average, adding more jobs than any other large metro area other, outside of New York and Phoenix. Growth in recent years has been powered by defense spending and the ramping up of homeland security spending. The Washington area receives a substantial share, an outsized share, of federal government procurement dollars, and a substantial portion of that, an outside share of that, is technology-related. The job growth has been concentrated in government and professional services and has been relatively high skills and relatively high pay occupations. But the appropriate question to ask is whether job growth will continue at this relatively breakneck pace. Now, I hesitate to forecast federal policy uh, with a hotly contested election right around the corner, but it seems reasonable to suppose that real growth in defense spend and security spending going to taper off somewhat uh, in the years ahead. Fortunately, a substantial portion of the recent job increases have also come in the private sector, with a substantial portion of these uh, occurring in sectors associated with technological innovation. We believe that total metro area employment should continue to expand at a quite healthy pace, uh, but at a rate that gradually declines over the next couple of years, remaining above the national average but gradually declining. On balance, even with regional differences that I've outlined, the broad outlook across the 5th District remains solid going forward, though there are some risks for the regional economy as there are for the national economy. Housing is easily the most widely discussed economic risk at the moment, because home prices in the Washington area have been notoriously high in recent years. I suspect that the housing market commands even more attention hereabouts, and with good reason. Washington experienced a more rapid price appreciation than most of the nation during the recent housing boom and has seen a sharper downturn in recent months by the statistics we've seen. But to understand any given local housing market, it's important to understand several macroeconomic factors affecting housing markets nationwide. 
because they're quite relevant to housing markets here in the Washington area and around the country. So I'd like to talk a bit about these macro factors and then come back to uh, and touch on the D.C. area housing market as we go along. First, remember that the housing boom has been very large by historical standards. A couple of numbers help illustrate the magnitudes involved. In 2005, almost 2 million home, new homes were built in the U.S. That's about a 50% increase from the average number built uh, each year during the 1990s. Last year, the average price of a home sold in the U.S. rose 13.3%. Back in the 90s, the average rate of increase was 2.8% per year. The acceleration was even greater in the Washington area, where price appreciation ran as high as 25% last year versus an average of around 2% in the 1990s. In fact, for several years, housing prices were essentially flat back then. Some of the concern about the housing outlook is motivated by the observation that large swings in residential housing activity, often in response to movements in interest rates, have played a big part in post-war U.S. Uh, business cycles, as say, over the last 60 years. But if you look carefully at the data, you see a very marked change beginning in the 1980s. Before that time, the way financial institutions were regulated contributed to extreme volatility in housing markets. Most home, mar um, most home purchases then were financed by thrift institutions uh, who raised the bulk of their funding through retail deposits that were subject to interest rate caps. When interest rates rose in the, during the course of the business cycle, and especially as inflation rose in the 1970s, the caps would be binding, money would tend to flow out of regulated financial institutions in search of higher uh, returns, a process known as disintermediation, and that caused severe disruption to the home financing system. This regulatory structure made housing activity much more interest rate sensitive and much more volatile than it otherwise would have been. The regulations capping deposit rates were eliminated in 1980, and the housing market's role in the business cycle has been substantially different uh, since then. In addition, cyclical interest rate movements were substantially larger prior to the mid-1980s because of the pattern of inflation. One should be very cautious, therefore, about comparing the current housing cycle to historical episodes, especially episodes prior to the mid-1980s. Important point is that it's important to remember that the recent housing market boom was driven by fundamental factors that were and still are quite favorable. And I'll just briefly list a few for you. Population continues to expand. Last year, the number of households increased by 1% nationwide. Income is growing. So far this year, uh, inflation-adjusted disposable income has increased at a 2.8% annual rate. We are a wealthy nation. Uh, household net worth is $53 trillion, uh, which represents over five and a half years' worth of disposable income on average. And the tax treatment of housing remains highly favorable. And finally, mortgage interest rates are, uh, were extremely low uh, for many years and even now are quite reasonable by historical standards. Given these solid fundamentals, it's not surprising that the demand for housing has risen, risen so strongly in recent years. As one would expect, uh, we've seen both higher production and higher prices in response to the sustained rise in demand. The rise in mortgage interest rates since 2004 has helped dampen uh, the demand for housing, but it seems likely that much of the increase in rates was anticipated 
In fact, the upward movement in rates may have given an extra boost to demand in 2005 as consumers took advantage of the waning days of lower mortgage interest rates. With the surge in demand apparently satisfied now, we can expect to see a, quote, return to normalcy, unquote, in the housing market, if I could borrow a phrase from a former Washington resident. Such a return to normalcy would involve lower production than we saw at the peak, and certainly a lower trajectory for housing prices. This transition to normalcy in the housing market is well underway. New home sales are down about 17%. Housing starts have fallen 20%. The rate of price appreciation has fallen substantially to the point where average prices are slightly lower in August than they were a year ago. These are national figures, of course. And more dramatic swings can be seen in some locations, particularly in areas that saw the strongest increases in housing prices and activity. The Washington area is a good case in point in this regard. Prices shot up more rapidly than elsewhere because of strong area job growth, creating demand for housing that builders had difficulty satisfying. Builders say that the availability of buildable lots limited housing production in many localities within our region. And this makes sense as a simple matter of supply and demand. If supply does not expand elastically to meet a rise in demand, then prices just have to rise instead. Indeed, looking across cities, both within our district and around the U.S., home price appreciation was greatest where the supply of buildable lots seems to have been the least elastic. In contrast, prices did not accelerate as much during the boom in other metro areas in the 5th district where the supply of buildable lots was more elastic, and as a result, prices are not decelerating by as much in those areas either. Looking ahead, forecasts by area economists suggest that the Washington metro area will, as I said, continue to expand uh, relatively strongly and continue to experience relatively strong job growth in the years ahead. If correct, and if the supply of buildable lots remains inelastic, these forecasts suggest that the ongoing correction in area housing is going to find a floor sooner rather than later. At the national level, some through the retrenchment in housing markets is obviously likely in the months ahead. But while there's substantial uncertainty about where the bottoming out will occur, I think that a catastrophic collapse in housing activity is not likely, since the fundamental determinants of housing demand that I listed earlier remain favorable. Prospects for employment and real income growth look good, net worth remains high, and the after-tax mortgage interest rates are still historically low. Instead, I see a return to a more conventional level of housing market activity in which volume, inventory, time on market are closer to historical averages. This adjustment is going to involve a substantial amount of uncertainty for market participants for a little bit of time. Both buyers and sellers are probably more unsure than usual right now about where prices need to settle in order to clear markets. In the meantime, buyers and sellers are collectively engaged in a time-consuming process of discovery, of figuring out the prices at which the expectations and plans of both buyers and sellers are mutually consistent. There is housing, though, and there's the rest of the economy. And the rest of the economy is in fairly good condition right now. Many macroeconomic analysts, however, are worried about the potential fallout of a weakening housing market on the rest of the economy. So let me say a few words about that. 
The direct impact of the housing market on the overall economic activity is easy to calculate. The measure of residential investment spending that's included in real GDP has now fallen for three consecutive quarters. In the second quarter, it fell at an annual rate of 11%, and it appears likely to decline even more rapidly in the second half of this year. Since residential investment accounts for less than 6% of GDP, that lowered real GDP growth by itself um, by about 7 tenths of a percent in the second quarter. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see housing reduce growth by even more for a few quarters. That would constitute a significant drag on the economy, but it would not end the expansion either, especially in light of offsetting strength that we expect in business investment spending, a topic I'll return to in a bit. So while the direct effect of housing on GDP may not be overly large, some analysts worry about the indirect effects, such as lower housing wealth leading to lower consumer spending. And it's important here to begin with the fundamentals in mind. While fluctuations in housing wealth are capable of affecting spending at the margin, the behavior of consumers is predominantly determined by their current and future income prospects. And those prospects are looking pretty good right now. With the unemployment rate below 5%, the labor market is looking fairly tight right now. Despite large increases in gasoline prices earlier this year, inflation-adjusted incomes are rising as well, as I noted earlier. And now that we're seeing some relief at gas pumps, it wouldn't be surprising to see a modest pickup in real income growth in the next couple of months. The deceleration and fall in housing prices certainly will cut into household net worth to some extent, but so far such wealth effects have done little to slow households in spending. Indeed, consumer spending appears to have accelerated in the current quarter. I should note that, as well, that the end of the housing boom could not have been a complete surprise to most participants. Sure, it's nice to sell your house when bidding wars and escalator clauses are common, as they were in 2005. But these conditions were fairly unusual in most markets, and it's hard to believe that many people seriously thought they would persist indefinitely. This is another reason to believe, I think, that most people are likely to be reasonably well positioned for the end of the boom. The labor market is another area where the, there's a potential for adverse spillover effects from the housing market. We've seen employment in residential construction sector fall this year as residential building activity has declined. Fortunately, however, non-residential construction activity is on an upswing. Over the four quarters ending in June, real non-residential investment rose 7.2%. Further increases in non-residential construction will allow many workers to simply change construction jobs rather than become unemployed. Indeed, over the last year, overall construction employment has actually risen by 210,000 jobs, even as housing activity is softened. And in the most recent employment report, again in September, um, construction jobs increased. As I mentioned earlier, the expected further weakening in housing activity is likely to be largely offset by business capital spending. Over the last three years, business fixed investment has grown at a quite solid 6.6% annual rate. Since business fixed investment is over 10% of GDP, this means that it is added two-thirds of percentage points of GDP growth, which has counteracted the drag from housing that I cited earlier. Indeed, when business investment spending demand fell sharply following the tech boom of the late 1990s and the FOMC lowered interest rates in response, the anticipation was that 
interest rate sensitive sectors like housing and consumer durables would take up much of the slack until business investment spending rebounded. And now that business investment spending has substantially recovered, it makes sense for housing activity to subside in turn. The fundamental underpinnings of near-term investment spending are business investment demand are fundamentally encouraging. Profitability is high, capacity utilization has been steadily rising, and many firms see strong demand for their products. Thus, it's not surprising that new orders for capital equipment increased 7.5% over the last year, and I see a solid outlook for capital spending over the next several quarters. So the outlook for overall spending in our economy looks reasonably good. Consumer spending's on track, business investment's robust, the softening in the housing market is not likely to be large enough to cancel out those sources of strength, and spillover effects are likely to be small. To round out the picture on the national economy, let me say a few words about the labor market and inflation before I conclude. Last year, we added almost 2 million jobs, or about 165,000 jobs per month. We maintained that rapid expansion in the first quarter of 2006, but over the last six months, job creation has fallen uh, to average around 118,000 jobs per month. While that sounds low, it's actually pretty good. It's pretty close to what we would need to keep employment growth in line with population growth, with growth in working age population. And that's what we're aiming for. And with the unemployment rate fairly low, it's appropriate that employment growth is close to its trend value. So what we're seeing in the labor market looks quite consistent with the transition to trend growth in overall economic activity that I spoke of earlier. The inflation outlook, on the other hand, is less appealing, and it's quite important to us at the Federal Reserve because, as I mentioned earlier, price stability is our central responsibility. I've said on several occasions that I would like to see inflation average about 1.5% of the time as measured by our preferred statistic the price index for core personal consumption expenditures. Moreover, I've said as well that I would be comfortable if inflation was a little higher or lower, coming in between 1% and 2%. Several other policymakers and economists have also endorsed that range as a functional definition of price stability. But inflation has been outside that comfort zone for over two years now. It was 2.2% in 2004. 2.1% in 05, and has come in at a 2.5% rate so far this year. And inflation looks worse if instead of using the core index, we were to use the overall index, which includes energy prices. That measure of inflation was 3.2% over the last 12 months. My concern regarding these inflation figures is straightforward. On a month-to-month -month basis, practically anything that affects, affects the supply or demand for an individual commodity can unexpectedly move a price index around. But over the period of several years, a central bank can achieve whatever average inflation rate it likes. And while there are really no benefits to high inflation, keeping inflation low and stable has a wide range of benefits to society. Low inflation helps people make better plans and commitments since they will have a better idea about the future spending power of their money. And when inflation is low, people don't have to devote time and effort protecting their wealth from being eroded by inflation. Thus, it's quite important to keep inflation from drifting away from target over time. Moreover, the longer that inflation remains elevated, the more difficult it will be to bring it back down. As people observe actual core inflation of 2.5%, 
and observed the FOMC's reactions, they adjust their expectations regarding future inflation, and those expectations become the basis for price setting in products and labor markets. By the way, it was for his contributions to economic research on exactly this phenomenon, expectations about future inflation changing in response to experience with inflation, that Professor Edmund Phelps was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics, which was announced just a few days ago. If the Fed were to allow inflation to remain above target for too long, inflation expectations could become centered around the higher rate. Once that occurs, history tells us that strong and more costly policy actions would be needed to bring inflation and inflation expectations down. We don't have any perfect measures of inflation expectations. But what we do have suggests that market participants right now do not foresee a, a rapid fall in core inflation. This is why I have argued for further policy actions to convincingly restore price stability. Thank you, and that concludes my remarks.